Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another Side Boob Cinema, your podcast within a podcast. I'm joined every week by my good friend, Jonathan Astro. How you doing, Ricky? I'm good, thanks. And as always, AJ. What, what, what? AJ. Excited. AJ, were you aggressed by Ricky's heteronormative uh, intro? <laughs> a micro, yeah. Like you a said, micro like, moment. Was it ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls? I think Isn't so. that deeply offensive today? Isn't that, it is. Like, if you say that now, aren't people like, what the fuck? Can I get away <laughs> with that if I, if I just put and other at the end? <laughs> Can I do that? And other. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and other. Ladies, gentlemen, freaks and geeks. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, maybe I should do that next that. time. What about just perverts? Because Perver- that's well, who's listening. That is, and what- I and we're perverts. <laughs> that is. What- <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell anyone about this show at Christmas, can you? I can't. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> well, one day. <laughs> one day. Uh, anyway, this evening, uh, this is uh, dare I say the the culmination of our Joe Esterhouse. Uh, sort of exploration in ba- with Basic Instinct. So, had you people seen this movie before? Yes, I had not. Great, that's always great. You know, we love the pure uh, experiences. Um, I have seen this movie, AJ. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I have, although we don't have a big enough house yet. But I have a pristine one sheet that I'm going to get uh, framed. Oh for, wow! And I want it to be a pride of place. Particularly moving forward, I feel like people need to know what what needs to happen, you know? (laughs) What you're all about. What I'm all about. (laughs) (laughs) What does the poster show? Well, it's it's uh, the the classic image. So it's it's uh, Michael Douglas's back. He's inside yep. profile, and we've got uh, Sharon, you know, glaring at us. It's it's quite classy. I always thought that's good. It is. So it's not the face sit. That Jade has. No, no, the Jade one. That is, that's big. <laughs> you wouldn't put that up in the bedroom. No, you know why I hate the Jade poster? Because <laughs> the guy who's having his face sat on is some guy. <laughs> yeah. Not it's not Michael Douglas. It's not a lead character. So it's not, it's bad storytelling. Like, like you look at it and you go, it's actually, that's the worst kind of storytelling. Cause you go, oh, wow. Like, like, you know, the story that that's telling is that it's Jade and who was a bit of a side character anyway, <laughs> some guy. Anyway. That guy is still showing that picture to people, randoms. He is. This, this is yeah. in Linda Fiorentino. Yeah. <laughs> when, he goes, when he goes to his 20-year uh, high school reunion, <laughs> he brings a big one sheet. That's right. <laughs> There'll be a lot of them out there, I guarantee you. We got 31 stab wounds. What was it? Ice pick. I'd like to speak to Miss Catherine Tremell, please. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. I wanted to write a book about the murder of a retired rock and roll star. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. I picked him up and I had sex with him. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. You've got no physical evidence. She's lying. What's your new book about? A detective who falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Stay away from her! You are out of control, Kurt. You won't learn anything I don't want you to know. She knew I'd say she did it, and she knew that nobody would buy it. She is screwing with your head, Nick! 
She knows things about me that I only told you. How's it feel to kill someone? You tell me. Oh, here's the synopsis. I'll hit you with it. This is Basic Instinct. Johnny Boz, rock and roll star, is murdered in his mansion. Uh, basically, he's turned into a pincushion by a faceless athletic blonde while they're having sex. Next day, the cavalry arrive, and this is where we meet Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas, and his partner Gus, who are assigned to find the killer. Now, Nick's got his, a lot on his plate, okay? He's recently quit smoking, Jack Daniels and Coke. Uh, and I mean, and I don't mean the cola. And there's something involving internal affairs that's got him seeing a hot shrink played by Jeannie Triplehorn. Dr. Elizabeth Garner is her name. Now, it turns out uh, he's also quit her recently. So the investigation leads to one Catherine Trammell, a hot blonde with a strikingly similar build to the girl we saw nail Johnny Boz in that first scene. Miss Trammell's a writer and a psych major who's living off the proceeds of another dead husband. Oddly, one of her books also features key details of the Johnny Boz murder written uh, prior, many years prior. Now, Nick and Catherine hit it off straight away with Nick spying on her getting changed straight away. The cops bring her in for questioning, but it only raises more questions. No, she didn't kill Johnny Boz, but she's definitely kinky. Oh, and she is a real blonde, AJ. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine's in his head and Nick backslides, drinking, smoking, and a little rough sex with Dr. Garner, uh, if you don't mind. He continues tailing Catherine and he discovers that she's using him as a character in her new book and also researching him along the way. It's about a detective involved in a bad shooting who gets tangled up with a deadly woman. She clearly knows too much about him. Someone must have sold her his psych evaluation. Now, Nick confronts the main suspect, uh, one Marty Nelson, who works for Internal Affairs, and it turns out Dr. Garner, uh, his hot shrink, was the one who sold him the file, supposedly to protect him from being fired. Then... Shot Cora, Marty is found dead with a bullet in his temple and Nick is suspended uh, as he's being investigated. Now, Nick makes his move on, move on Catherine uh, and they start their affair proper, having many much dirty sex, which puts Catherine's lesbian lover, Roxy, out. Someone in a black car tries to kill Nick and he runs them into a ditch causing a fatal accident. Turns out it's Roxy. Now, Catherine's bummed, okay? She tells Nick about the girl, another girl from her past who used to stalk her, so uh, called Lisa Hoberman. Now, seems Catherine's popular. Nick discovers that Lisa Hoberman is, in fact, Dr. Garner, uh, his Dr. Garner. And now he confronts her, and, and she admits embarrassed that she did have a brief fling with Catherine in, in college, but she insists that it's Catherine who's the killer. Now, meanwhile, Catherine finishes her new book and rejects Nick, okay? After admitting that it was indeed their time together, that is, uh, the fuck of the century. Gus takes Nick to an exciting lead, a former roommate of Catherine's who has the whole story, apparently. Nick waits outside while Gus goes to get the juice. Nick realises it's a trap, but it's too late. Gus is murdered by a blonde with an ice pick. Dr. Garner appears, saying she got a message to meet Gus there. Nick pulls his weapon. She reaches into her pocket, and he takes his shot, killing her. 
The cops find a blonde wig, bloody ice pick, and police issue raincoat in the stairwell. They also find a gun in Dr. Garner's apartment and articles, obsessive articles about Catherine, uh, along with copies of her books, uh, which all seems to point to Dr. Garner's guilt. Now, Catherine tracks Nick down. Seems she cares about Nick, okay? He's gotten under her skin. And they have one last fuck, and Catherine reaches for something, but it's a false alarm. They embrace, fade out. Fade in. I speak under the bed. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So <laughs> that's what happened in the movie. I thought it made a lot more sense than Jade. Yeah. Than Jade, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I went into a lot of detail with Jade and I found myself very confused. I, I found it interesting seeing this up against Showgirls. It may be a little bit more d- disappointed in Showgirls, you know. <laughs> 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 that is... The best thing well, I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> just because, just because this film nails it like on every level, and I'm disappointed that they couldn't nail anything in Showgirls like on any level, you know. Well, that's the thing because we're yes, this this film reveals the flaws in in all of the other ones, particularly Showgirls, but also Jade. You know, I think that um, this yeah, this gets uh, everything right. Uh, that Jade gets wrong. Yeah, this is proper. But first, AJ, what what's your overall experience? How did you watch this movie? You watched this uh, alone? I did. Okay. All right. Because I left it at the last minute, so Frank was at work. But it, we're going to rewatch <laughs> both of the last films for Frank because as it was the Frank Fest. It is Frank Fest. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I loved it. It's amazing. Why haven't I seen it 30 times? Oh, what a great response because it's always a bit Mm. of a worry, you know. You could say, I hate it and I hate you. (laughs) And I'm out. (laughs) I'm out and I'm out. (laughs) It's interesting because it gets uh, gets sort of middle of the road overall score like on IMDb, like of about a six, you know. I don't Uh, get it. Well, I don't get that either because – Sharon Stone alone is so fucking amazing in this movie. So good. Like, I I don't know why she didn't win an Oscar for this, you know? Yes. Well, I read some Insta Smack, like, the other day about this. Like, some someone I follow was, you know, talking about Sharon Stone or something and said they said she was hot in Total Recall or whatever. And then some people were just just talking smack about Basic Instinct. What? And I, and I, I got so steamed. Like I was just like, what are you talking about? You know, like like it's, I've I've never understood this on so many different levels. Basically, um, the script's wonderful, it's deft, um, it's always ahead of you. Mm. Uh, you know, just like Catherine, if this isn't incredible entertainment, then what is? Do you know what I mean? What are we talking about? Like, the, I think we need, you need to temper. Whenever someone gives it that six out of ten or five out of ten, you, you just need to say, compared to what? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we yeah. talking about? Like, because if they're talking about, if we want to talk about, um, you know, artistic merit or something, then I'd go, okay, all right. So give me more detail. Are you talking about um, Fellini or Tarkovsky or something? Are you talking about, you know, like mid twentieth century European art film? Because if you are, then this was never intended to be that. So, no. so you should, you ought not judge this on those terms. This is uh, awesome, awesome in the old sense of the word, Hollywood entertainment, mm. a masterpiece in the thriller genre. Um, so, I don't understand what people are talking about. Like, it's got a lot. It's got more in common with, you know, mainstream Hollywood 
big, but you all, all the all the big great stuff. You want big stars. You want big locations. You want lots of extras. You want you know beautiful cinematography. You want yeah, girls with girls with guns. All that stuff, right? Uh, that goes into the the, the 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 biggest Hollywood films and the best. And you want it to be slick. So I don't understand when people go, oh yeah, it's oh, it's not that good. And you just go, what are you talking about? What is this other film that 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 it that is it's it's not as good as what what I loved about this one, and again to compare it to Showgirls, the dialogue <laughs> the dialogue is so sharp and witty mm. and and foreplay esque, and um and no talk of chips, <laughs> <laughs> chips or nails <laughs> or brown <laughs> rice and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just just the quips back and forth. You know, how does it feel to kill someone? You tell me. You know, just like well, it's, it's neo, it's ne- noir dialogue. Mm. It's like yeah. double indemnity dialogue, and it's and it's fantastic. It's like a, like um, volleys over the over the net. Mm. You know, constantly. Uh, they're, they're the real sex scenes. <laughs> it's those dialogue dialogue yeah. scenes. You know, mm. yeah, uh, and delicious. I feel like there's so many elements of the film that are like foreplay, like. Just teasing you a little bit, you know, like the the, the music's the same, the dialogues like that, um, cinematography, cinematography, mm. uh, the lighting as well. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto the lighting, or we'll get onto the the famous scene, the interrogation scene, which has some quite interesting lighting. I've got a note about, but um, uh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> is that the is that the most paused, freeze framed? Uh, scene in cinema history must be. Yeah, I think she does a bit on Conan about it. Right. And it is, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think this film is, it's a film for the ages, you know, and it's a a performance for the ages too. Like, you know, we're going to be talking about this film for a very long time and it's just, it's phenomenal. I love this movie. I Mm. I could watch it every day. Uh, I think it's it, it gains with it viewings. I just I just can't get enough of it. I was there. I, I couldn't like it's always loomed large. You, you know, it came out at a time when I was pretty young, but but um, I managed to get it and list a copy of it somehow. Uh, <laughs> and um, and it was just even panned and scanned. So with like you know most of the image cut off, and you know back then our TVs weren't that great, and it would have been fuzzy after mm. a while and whatever. Even with all of that going on, this film loomed so large. It was just like. You know, and I, and I loved the the glimpse into the adult world that it gave me. You know, and Danny Boyle's talked about this. I've talked about it on this podcast before. You know, Danny Boyle talks about um, how when he was a kid, uh, he longed to be part of the adult world, and that's why you wanted to sneak in and watch. Yeah, I don't know, like if you were in the nineties, Train Spotting or Pulp Fiction, or back in his day, it would have been, you know, um, Get Carter or you know, Performance or something like that. You'd sneak in and see these Nicholas Rogue movies or whatever because you you were interested in the in the darkness and 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 the sort of the robust nature of, of what it means to be an adult. And I, I, that's what this movie represents to me. It, it is just like a time when we wanted, you know, from my perspective, I just used to look at it and go, "Wow, this you know, the adult world is so so interesting and exciting." You know, people in suits and it's dangerous and. You know, there's there's death and sex and you know scary psychological games and and all of that. And I feel, as, as I've said before, you know, despite what they say, I just I'm not sure Ant Man gives me the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> you know, Major? Isn't there a girl on girl scene in Ant Man? 
Well, what well, do you mean? Tell, well, <laughs> well, that's what it needs to be more of. Because no, as we know, as we know, Marvel and Disney, they think that what goes on in this movie is disgusting. All they're, of it. The Barbie mm. and Ken dolls. Yeah, they just go. They'd go. They'd go. We've released a new version, and um, it's a minute long, and there's, <laughs> <nothing> <laughs> and there's no. Talk about how wonderful Sharon Stone's pussy is. <laughs> <laughs> the, Gus, the partner, is obsessed oh, with her pussy. Gus. Oh, yeah. By the way, mm. she got that magna cum laude pussy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you wrote that down, right? I, I definitely did. You know I did. <laughs> uh, I think I only wrote down Gus quotes, actually. <laughs> he has got That's the great. best line. He yeah. is good. Give me some other ones. Give me some more Gus. What do you got? You've got. Goddamn Tweety Bird heads flying around your head. It's <laughs> <laughs> so long. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was he was brilliant. He was the best. Uh, my my Gus quote I've got here is that's her pussy talking, not your brain. <laughs> so true. We've all been there. <laughs> He's right though. He's right. Though. It's interesting. I I heard uh, uh, on one of the little uh, documentary featurette things that um, came with the film. Uh, Michael Douglas talking about how um, he felt that that sex scenes were in danger of like becoming extinct in in Hollywood movies, and he thought that uh, around that early '90s period things were getting uh, pretty conservative, and he wanted to make something daring and something sexual, and that that drew him to this project. And fucking hell, what does he reckon now? I know that's what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> what what the hell does he think's going on now? I mean, I know he's a, he's a pretty old man now, so he might not have his finger on the pulse, but. Fucking hell, you know. I mean, we talk about how the 90s were so dangerous and here's Michael mm. Douglas saying it was conservative, conservative as fuck, you know. Well, I that guess- was the original PC era, the early 90s. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that yeah. was when it first was born, political correct. Well, not really first born, but that was certainly a, a major, in the last 30 years, a big major push in that early 90s time of PC, political yep. correctness and, you know, just that general conservatism. I mean, you see the horror in these movies about sex and stuff, the other stuff we've watched, and the general, you know, tone of the, there was a real temperance. Like, I think maybe it was because the conservatives in some in in different places had power, and they were sort of, you know, there was maybe the the religious right in America had a bit more going on, and and they were able to sort of clamp down a bit more and and on moral grounds whereas yeah now since then the script has completely flipped and now what we've got is we've got um you know the march to the institutions we've had all those all the all the lefties go through take over these positions and their their line is very different no but just as authoritarian and creepy but in a different way and the, and the outcome seems to be the same too yeah yes they both have the same outcome. Like yeah. so now they go, they're all they're obsessed with the diversity and inclusion, but all we but all we get is this kind of, you know, a bit like in the in shitty versions of the future, you just get like a, a food pill. <laughs> like yeah. you know, they've just given us this food pill and it's just like, yeah, got the infinity gauntlet and Spider-Man <laughs> and Doctor Strange <laughs> and no Sharon Stone's pussy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look. You go. Where's the Where's the pill with Sharon Stone's um, blonde pussy? And they go. There is that. We don't. We don't make that one. We've never made that one. And they press the little button under the desk, and then people come and get you, and reeducate you. <laughs> well, with will this film uh, go down the memory hole? Yes, unless we keep it alive. That's that's what people need to recognise, and we need to keep talking about this because, you know. You just need to 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 will it into life. 
need to talk about it like it's like it's happening because films only find their life after the fact. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. people didn't really give a fuck about Citizen Kane, in like you know, back in the day, or, or, or it's a wonderful life, really. You know what I mean? It was definitely it's a wonderful life. That was a flop. Yeah, P- people cared about this film though. It made a shit ton of money. They did. So it's a slightly different situation. However, like there was that there's that middle period where no one talks about it, and now we need to we need to just to will it into existence. And you'd be surprised what can happen if you know certain people end up liking something like Tarantino in the nineties did so much for cinema like you know he brought films like you know just because he said he was a tastemaker and he was in a position of power and he started up a company called rolling thunder pictures and he was like right fuck it i'm going to tell the world what's what's hot and under that little banner he released like chunking express and a whole bunch of cool films that he was just like yeah rolling thunder he's like yeah man that's that's another film and he's just like like this is what's hot you know you can you can set the agenda so we need this film to be taken up by some some cool tastemaker. Well, we've we've seen what happens when Disney get their claws into things, mm. and and that you know that thing you told us last week, which blew my mind, was that they've sort of digitally uh, lengthened uh, the hair in that splash scene where Daryl Hannah goes out into the ocean to cover her butt cheeks. Yeah, because because butts are disgusting. <laughs> you know, like like. <laughs> but if you get that's the thing, no one's in the room when these people bring up this stuff. No one's in the room to say, "Wait, can you just explain to me in great detail what you what you mean?" And they go, mm. "Well, we just want to lengthen the hair." I go, "No, no, no. I know what we, what you want to do. I just need to know exactly why you want to do it." And then they then whatever reason they told you would sound like the creepiest thing you've ever heard. If they were like, "Well, every time I see butt cheeks, my dick gets hard," <laughs> <laughs> and you go, "Okay, well, yours a problem with you because I don't think that's the point of this scene. I think it's meant to be she's free and nude and a mermaid." Oh, yeah, I know, but I saw butt cheeks and, look, i got a chubby now just talking about it. <laughs> and you go, right. So or it doesn't matter what answer they came up with, you know, it would just be bad. So this fucking film, like, this is this is all indefensible. That's the thing. Like, we're in an era now. Everything in this movie is indefensible. Like, like if you're in a room with a, with a, a lefty lunatic um, authoritarian, how and obviously they've got the power. They 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 obviously they've got they they have you know got the position of power because they've been hired for that those purposes. How can you ever win the argument? Like I just heard that that the Paul Verhoeven and Yander Bont talking on the commentary about the interview scene, uh, the famous interview scene, and they were like Yander both Euro guys and Yander Bont the DOP is like, oh yes, but you know she's in control. You know she's so sexy and so beautiful. Like like if imagine saying that to a lefty authoritarian. Like that—that's just absolutely indefensible. Wouldn't they just say, "Oh, oh, you shouldn't be talking, you shouldn't be talking about women like that," and then the discussion's over, and then nothing, you know, you know what I mean? Like you can't, you could, you could never even will anything like this into being now under the yeah. current circuit climate. You couldn't. Well, Sharon Stone in interviews was saying that you know it's such a powerful uh, woman wielding her power, wielding her sexuality, and. You know, people used to see that as a, as a positive female trait. Yeah, but she's not kicking butt and there's men in it. That's mm. a problem. So. Well, this film had, it had an interesting beginning. $3 million was paid to Esther House for the script. Apparently he wrote it in 13 days, I think, some, something like that. Compare uh, that to the, to the months of research they did for Showgirls. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm always dubious when someone says they've written a script. In 13 days. I mean... It's usually a lie, by the way. Yeah, it usually, yeah. Stallone reckons he wrote Rocky in one night, you know. Coke dump. 
There's uh, a lot of coke in these stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I can believe that from L. Ron Hubbard, who just churned out the shit day after day without without even rewriting it. You know, it's first draft, off it goes. But I don't think there's even, something like this. They're not mentioning the rewrites. Like, like, like he might have written it in 13 days, but they went through a big process. They got another writer on and did five drafts. And yeah, but apparently they 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 left. They they threw all that out though, and went Esterhouse's original was better. But that, yes, but here's what I would argue in in, de- in the development process that uh, what, that was all bought and paid for because the thing is the five drafts you had to do because he had no development because it had no development. Those five drafts were the development. It, you can either do it at the beginning or in the middle or at the end in the edit suite, however you like. You're doing it. Mm. You're doing that work. Like, yeah. like it's, and they did it in the middle. That's all. And they paid for it. And then they, because that's standard. You, you often realize that, that the first draft or the third draft or whatever was great and the 26th draft wasn't that good. <laughs> but you had to do, you have to do the whole work. You have to do the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's what I would argue. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but yeah, you should be circumspect of these bullshit Hollywood myths because. They're, they don't. They only create bad writers as well, like out there who go, "Oh yeah, the, you know, I can do this in a weekend or whatever." And you go, "No, you can't." Yeah, he'd, he'd yeah. already written like Joe House had like they act like the what this is his first movie. <laughs> he already yeah. done like <laughs> fucking what is it like twelve years of movies or something? Like, come on, mm. yeah. And that's yeah. the reason why he's getting paid. That's right. Yeah. So it only works as a story if if he'd never written anything before, and you go, mm. "Oh, that's extraordinary." And you go, "Wait, hadn't he done like?" You know, flash dance and and you know, music box and a whole bunch of other movies, and you say, oh yeah, so he knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Michael Douglas was also involved pretty early on, and his background was in film producing as well as acting. Because didn't he produce One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? That he was Academy Award winner for that. Yeah, as well. an, an early success of his. And uh, so he was involved quite early, and and he felt that Sharon Stone was not big enough of a star to to go alongside him. They needed like a really a bankable actor, a, a bankable actress. And and Verhoeven, he had worked with Sharon Stone on Total Recall, and uh, he said what he loved about Sharon Stone was that she could could flick the switch between being you know uh, you know really psycho to really nice and um, or she's and rich, she's actually manic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she probably is. <laughs> so he liked that aspect, and he thought that she she'd be able to do it. And so they uh, they auditioned so many different actresses, and and the nudity was always a big problem. Like Verhoeven from the outset would say to the actresses, you know, there's sex in this. You know, it has to be full nude. It has to be this. And you know, a lot of potential actresses didn't want to didn't want to be a part of that. Um, so he did some screen tests with Sharon Stone, and then uh, it wasn't until Michael Douglas did a screen test with her that he was like, "Yep, yeah, I think she's got she's got what it takes." And um, yeah, which is great because you know it would be a different thing if it was Demi Moore or if it was Michelle Pfeiffer or I just you know the other thing I think Sharon Stone because she was at the point in her career where she really needed to have a success or it would she felt that it would be over and she was looking to go back and study a law degree and give up acting altogether. So she felt that it was her final shot at something and um she's given it 110. She is. Yeah. yeah she's so 110. good. Yeah. So Verhoeven said to her whatever I want you have to do it and she <laughs> and she said yes to that. Um which is Great. amazing. It's just so good, you know. Um she is, you know, part of a long tradition of film noir characters as she's beautiful, feminine and and also completely masculine and 
she's a superheroine in her cleverness and yeah, it's just so great. And there was also a lot of controversy around the gay and lesbian stuff as well. Uh, gay and lesbian alliance, they protested after reading a leaked script uh, and they protested like on set outside, like on locations, oh, wow. like constantly. Banners with the, the movie's ending written on it saying that like, Catherine did it and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And whistles and light, trying to shine lights in on set and stuff like that and uh, really causing a ruckus. And their big deal was that, you know, the script showed yet another lesbian as being, you know, a psycho killer, mm. which is interesting to me because I, I, I can't think of any films where the lesbians like a psycho killer. Well, Maybe. I think the point they're trying to make, it goes, it goes you know, it, back to uh, in cinema, basically, you know, we, we've attached the history of LGBT on cinema has been, you know, one of of the other and one of, the, you know, like if you look at Psycho, uh, you know, that I think is a good example of what they cite as being, you know, sort of the LGBT stuff being just rolled into uh, like loony killers. Like, and, and hmm. so there was a huge tradition. Like in Dress to Kill, which is a, which is the Palmer film that we're definitely going to watch. That's another one that's deeply offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a general uh sexual perversion and deviant yeah. behavior deviant behavior and and yeah. mixed up with you being um a maniac usually i think that's what they they or, or being someone who's sick you know like science of lambs do you know what i mean like mm. so it, it it would be different if like you know and, and to be to be uh, i completely understand like it would be different if if one of the cops, like if his partner was was bi or something or gay or whatever, that and just do, and he was a cop and and it wasn't a big deal. Like that's that that's the sort of push I think they were trying to do. We've sort of entered a new phase now. I think. Yeah. But- well, but they were they were asking for ridiculous changes. They wanted uh, they wanted to flip the characters. They wanted Michael Douglas to be the killer and and Sharon Stone to be the detective. Mm, uh, they, they wanted to change. <laughs> they wanted to change the ending. Oh yeah. Um, Tell me more. <laughs> have you done any writing? This movie would suck. Have you, have, you, have you lunatics who have no job and who are picketing all night on a Tuesday night, have you yeah. done any writing? No, I haven't. Well, can you fuck off then? But Verhoeven said, look, listen, look, watch my other pictures. Like, I've done this sort of material before. Like, go back and watch these films. And he listed a few of them. It's like, you know, and, but they were like, no, nah, don't have time for that. Well, and here's the you might you're sure you can get to this, but Joy Esterhouse came out on the side side of, of those. He people. did. I know. He he was gonna cave and, and change stuff. Yeah. That is that's so rock and roll though. That means I think he was just totally wrapped up in the moment and hit that time of life for him, which sounded crazy. Like it just <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the sort of big, crazy lunatic stuff that you just go, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Yeah, you but know, that's like- the kind of shit that happens now. Pe- people would, you know, if, if there's any controversy surrounding uh, any of the woke issues, you know, to do with anything, you know, sexuality, transgender, um, you know, indigenous, uh, you know, black relations, anything like that, people would be scrambling around going, oh, no, you know, we've got to fix it. We've got to and they would atone for their but sins the and apologise. And- so that's the difference between then and now is that it took a – strong character who wouldn't be allowed in the system now so Verhoeven, mm. like you know stood by uh his guns and was like no i'm not changing it and he was right and you know what and joe Astor House should look back now and i'm sure he does and say oh my god my best film 
was due to um, someone's strength of character mm. and, and conviction and integrity in, in actually d- delivering my one of my first drafts on the screen, you know, and protecting the work from me. Do you know what mm. I mean? So Verhoeven wouldn't be allowed to work now, okay? Definitely not in America. If you enjoy what we do here on the New Flesh podcast, there are a number of ways you can contribute to the success of the show. Consider supporting us financially by becoming a Patreon member and donating monthly or yearly. Alternatively, you can donate money through the Buy Me A Coffee platform. If you're strapped for cash at this point in time, there are a number of other ways to support the new flesh. You can give us a rating or review through Apple Podcasts. These help others to find our show and help spread the word. Or you can tell your friends about us. Don't underestimate the power of a podcast recommendation. And now, back to the show. The thing is, when the movie came out and when when LGBT people saw it, they liked it. Well, it's they love That's it. That's the now. thing. They love it. This movie's been totally claimed by that community. Like they, you could write, you could read academic papers now where they'd be they'd, like Camille Parlia, I think she's done a common mm. famous commentary to this and everything. So, you know, she's been, been part of it. But this is there, there are strong readings of this film that are um, well. We've entered this new phase now as well because. You know, because this film actually does seem quite antiquated now because it's just about a bi- bisexuals and lesbians in a way. Whereas now that that those are those are two communities that um or two sections of the of the alphabet soup that are are, are being erased. So this film actually champions them in a way that that is 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 very different to now. Now you'd just be like, there are no things as lesbian. There's no such thing as lesbians. That you what you really are is a tra- a beautiful trans person, <laughs> and there are no bisexual <laughs> people either. You know, like that's that's the, the the main thing now. Yeah, yeah. So, but at the end at, at the end of the day, all this controversy helped to uh, make the film a success. You know, because people people wanted to see it for themselves. Like, what is this movie that people are protesting mm. about? You know, I mean, it would have made it even more exciting to go and see it. Oh, it just would have been an event, huge event. Like, yeah. I just feel like it's the greatest Saturday night movie ever, mm. or Friday night movie. Just just like. The, the, what an awesome date movie! You go yeah. out and it's just it's 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 uh, you know clever plot, um, you know wonderful erotic uh, scenes, and it is eroticism, you know, because it's not pornography. He wants you to join the dots. There's so much storytelling in, mm. you know, it's all those wonderful little things: the bare feet, uh, you know, going through the water in the rain. It's the the peekaboo sort of looking at her. Uh, getting changed, you know, it's like it's 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 really quite uh, wondrous, and and then we've got car chases and 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 you know uh, outrageous violence. It is just like you know, and and the Hitchcock stuff helps as well. Like so, it's links to Hitchcock, you know, really lift it into a you know. You can see references to Vertigo, not just in the location, but in costume, and you know they've done cinematic, uh, you know, cinematography uh, has some references to Hitchcock as well and score. Oh, absolutely. How could I forget the fucking yeah. score? Yeah, yeah, that's right, the score. So <laughs> it's just big, bold, um, subversive entertainment. And mm. I just, this, I, my heart, I, I know I say this every now and then, but my heart hurts. I watch this yeah. movie and my heart hurts. Like I'm just like, what in God's name has happened? Do you know what I mean? Like what? how, how, because there's nothing on Netflix like this. I know there's nothing on Netflix like this. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just glorious. What do we think of Michael Douglas? Is he likable in this film? AJ. Yeah. Because it's sort of hard to tell who who the hero is. Like, 
in a way, like I think Sharon Stone is ultimately the hero. Like at the end, I'm kind of gunning for her to- But that's why this movie is subversive mm. because the casting of Michael Douglas immediately makes you go, well, he's the alpha, he's the, the A-list star, he must be the hero. Mm. But his actions consistently throughout the movie sort of reveal him to be increasingly becoming an anti-hero. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and he's very damaged and, um, you know, and, he, and he's like, <laughs> he's out for himself and stuff. Like, mm. it's sort of really, you know, they, they are a beautiful complement to each other. So I don't know. I, um, I think he's the, 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 you know, the rock. Well, actually, both of them are, but in Jade, David Caruso can't hold the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine oh, Basic Instinct with Caruso? <laughs> no. Well, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. It, and like it didn't. Well, actually, the, um, in, in, so the, in a bit of Esther House uh, extended universe. So Corelli, uh, the Caruso character, is the Wayne is Wayne Knight in this movie. So, oh. so Wayne Knight. So, so um, Newman, yeah, in this movie is Corelli. Oh fuck! They should have brought Newman into being Jade. <laughs> Imagine that. that? Be hot? Be hot. <laughs> Newman. <laughs> Apparently, Steven Spielberg, when he saw Basic Instinct, he loved Newman so much that he waited to the, you know, to see the credits to write his name down because he wanted him for uh, uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. yeah, he wanted him for Jurassic Park. Well, he got him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, famous. So yeah, I don't know. It's. Uh, I think it's. I, I I love Michael Douglas in this movie. I think he's he's he is a real hero and. Um, you know, very generous performer. He didn't have to let them have Sharon Stone. He could have. He could have said, "No, no, that's not happening." Yeah. Uh, so that's turned out to be um, very generous of him. Apparently, mm. he had a bit of a breakdown at one point. I, I, I've heard Verhoeven talk about this, and and this is understandable. Like Verhoeven's obviously focusing all his time on Sharon Stone because she's, you know, not as experienced in the rest of it, and just got a more complex performance. And at one point, he was just like, you know, feeling very left out. Uh, which I love because it's you know for someone who's a who's an experienced producer and whatnot for him to have a nice little actor moment and be like oh like you know I'm not getting <laughs> any love me. and then then Paul had to say no you're great you know like <laughs> you're Michael Douglas yeah you know? it's okay so Ricky you brought this up before collaboration is king I think in this movie I think that uh, the reason part of the reason this is so successful is, is that it's the collaborations so. You know, uh, I think Jan de Bont, uh, DOP, who who is a director in his own right, did one another one of the greatest Hollywood action movies of all time, Speed. Uh, he directed that, and um, so he's a director in his own right. He also did Twister. <laughs> Actually, I, don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember that fucking movie. Yeah, Me good too. movie. The anyway, cow. so so Jan de Bont, <laughs> yes, the cow. <laughs> so Jan de Bont, DOP, uh, and and Verhoeven, starting with Esther House, you know, uh, and then we've got Michael Douglas. Then we've got, you know, the actors, Gene Trubon, Sharon Stone, all those other character actors in it. But, you know, I really think um, a lot of it comes down to Jerry Goldsmith. For sure. Yeah. Mm. He's uh, the, the scores, the glue, I think, that holds this, this movie together. Right from the get go. And it's, it's just such an important element to, to the film. Um, and, you know, it's it's debatable whether music can can you know we've talked about music. Sometimes composers are brought on board to to quote unquote save a picture and 
you know, I don't think music can ever save a shitty film, but it can definitely make it something, push something to the next level, which That's I, think, right. I think the music does. It won't help shitty, but it will, but it can unlock a film. And I've talked about this in previous uh, times. <laughs> Actually, I think it was Jerry Goldsmith as well who did um, uh, First Blood, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a famous example. I've talked about mm. this again on previous uh, times where they've, they've tested the film and people are just like this movie i don't get this movie and then yeah. suddenly they, they they do jerry goldsmith's score and it, it completely transforms the movie they're like oh my god i love rambo i love him you know yeah and, yeah and what changed just the music mm. yeah that's true and uh, apparently chinatown was the same they had a a different score and um jerry goldsmith uh did the score for chinatown in 10 days and that's that's been verified the <laughs> the work this score holds on its own, but the links to Chinatown help. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Like that. Mm -hmm. The the, the um, is it the horns? Oh, the hearing? trumpet in Chinatown. This famous solo. Yes, that. I'm yeah. hearing stuff. There's Chinatown stuff in this score, mm -hmm. and and um and and it really does, you know, it it when you've got someone like him doing your score, uh, I think that that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Verhoeven. He's, there's a quote from him here. Uh, it's one of these films where music uh, and film cannot be se separated from one another. Um, sex thrillers before this were kind of jazzy and often featured the saxophone. And this score is much more sophisticated and psychological. Um, it, it, it has like a coldness to it. Um, it really is music for a psychopath, you know, mm. for, for a sociopath. Um, it's crystalline and mysterious. Um, and the score is all about climax. It builds with a sense of, of orgasm and a sense of impending murder. It ebbs and flows like lovemaking. Um, and it has strong links to, as we said, Vertigo as well, which Verhoeven sort of came to Goldsmith and said, you know, I don't, don't want to really give you big film references but if you to wouldn't sort mind. Of rip off. But, you know... <laughs> Vertigo is key here. Have you seen Vertigo? Um, <laughs> which is, you know, one of Bernard Herrmann's greatest, uh, well, probably his greatest film scores. The Dread, as soon as the first the director says Vertigo. Well, just Gold, like, oh, Goldsmith actually knew Herrmann. They, they worked together at the same radio station back when radio plays were kind of a big deal and composers would write bits and pieces for radio plays. And Goldsmith actually didn't think that highly of Bernard Herrmann actually he thought he wasn't actually a very good composer but he was very good at 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 what he what he did you know what he did he did really well which is a very minimal uh repetitive uh sort of film score which I think you know Bernard Herrmann he he is basically the grandfather of modern film scores really like everything ties back to Bernard Herrmann before that you'd have these these big bloated Max Steiner scores of the 1930s, you know, like King Kong. Mickey Mouse scores where, where they just, the music uh, is very tied to action on screen. That's right, yeah. It's like every person's movement had some sort of a musical punctuation and and to see that with modern eyes is just really jarring and um, tedious. Um, and Herman really pushed away from that. It's interesting also, like, there was once, I think, uh, an altercation between Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith in the halls of CBS radio where uh, there was some promo that, that they were they were airing for a radio play that was to, to come, you know, coming soon and, and it was going to be scored by Jerry Goldsmith. But 
because there wasn't a lot of time to put together one of these promos, they used some music from existing music from Bernard Herman and he heard it and he went up to Goldsmith and just gave him a total serving saying, you've stolen my music, you fucking prick, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there was a little bit of tension between those two guys, but, you know, obviously Goldsmith was very aware of Bernard Herman and what Goldsmith's done here, he's, his score draws entirely from elements of the main theme. And so a more old fashioned approach would be for each character to have their own theme and a good sort of contemporary example of this is the original Star Wars trilogy where you have the Luke and Leia theme, you have the Empire theme, and it sort of works for that. But for something like this, it needs a little bit more uh, sophistication and that needs to be subverted a little bit more. And so he's gone for what's called an, an overall theme. So that sort of permeates the, the, entire, the entire film. Um, and one of the more recognisable repeated musical motifs is that of the opening sex scene, which returns to signpost uh, the murder. And it tricks us several times into thinking that Catherine's about to murder Nick, but, you know, it fools us every time. I think it happens two or three times. Um, and then, of course, you get that huge climax at the end where the, the camera pans down under the bed and you, you, you see the ice pick. And So good. Jack in the box. It was incredible. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And it's, you know, the music's rapturous and it's operatic, just like Vertigo was, uh, but I think it pushes it into a more intense level with more intricate melodic fragments and darker, fuller textures. And um, Goldsmith actually said that this was the most difficult score he had to write because it's a real dance between dialogue and emotion and action. And a lot of it is very subtle and, and sits under the dialogue. You know, a great scene is the, the cross-leg scene where... He underscores the interplay and the power dynamics of Catherine and the detectives. And it's, it's very tricky to get that sort of stuff right because you can really overpower a scene or, or uh, detract from a scene and you've really got to be sort of a third, third element weaving its way through everything, you know. Um, he also combined subtle electronics with the orchestra as well. I don't know if you heard that. There's... I only noticed this in this viewing, actually. Right. Uh, when uh, Nick turns up to uh, Marty Nelson's death, so the guy who's been shot in the head, mm -hmm. there's a driving electronic uh, bit of business going on that I'd never heard before. Yeah, there's some uh, sort of electronic percussion. There's also a, a sort of a melodic synth sound as well that's reminiscent of actually a, a French electronic instrument called an ons matonot, which is a lot like a theremin, but much easier to play because it has a, has a keyboard involved. And uh, it's used um, it's used a lot in French sort of avant-garde classical music, but also being used in a lot of film scores. But this score as well has, there's something about it that's timeless. So, mm. you know, I love Goldsmith's Hoosier score, but I, I, cannot, I cannot say that it's timeless. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So if you've ever heard Hoosiers, you listen to it and you go, oh, wow, this is the most, this is Jerry Goldsmith all in in the 80s. Whereas this score, I think you listen to it now and it's not like you're, you're not um, sort of, you know, getting that same feeling like when you watch Shaft or something and you hear the Shaft sort of score <laughs> and you go, okay, that was a time and place. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Well, I think, I think because the orchestra is a timeless thing, I think. Yes. Shaft. Can you dig it? <laughs> <laughs> I, think this, I think this works because he's used the electronic stuff very minimally. You know, he was a big fan of incorporating all sorts of weird and wacky and interesting 
sounds and textures. Like, you know, he wrote music for um, for the original Planet of the Apes film, which is another great score that uses a lot of world percussion. And, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Charlton Heston, but the score is groundbreaking. And then uh, he did a similar thing with the, the original Alien film. He's got a bunch of weird instruments. And um, so he was was always looking for 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 new sounds to incorporate and electric you know he gravitated towards electronics because that was kind of the new thing happening and but he didn't do full marauder though like he didn't no he's like, he's never gone full marauder um you never go full marauder aj <laughs> <laughs> unless you're marauder unless you're marauder <laughs> but that's a different kind of thing you know i mean for a while the the electronic score like like you know marauder scores were a bit on the nose in the in the early noughts, but it's come back with a vengeance. It you has. know, I mean, oh, it, huge, I mean, look yeah. at look at strange shows like Stranger Things, and and you know, uh, everything's retro synth now, and um, you know, I'm sure that'll pass, and then orchestras will be favoured a little bit more, you know, down the track. Everything sort of goes in cycles, and it's got a quote here from Goldsmith. He says, uh, basic instinct was probably the most difficult I've ever done. Uh, it's a very convoluted story with very unorthodox characters. It's a murder mystery, but it isn't really a murder, mi murder mystery. The director, Paul Verhoeven, had a very clear idea of how the woman should be, and I had a hard time getting it. Uh, because of Paul pushing me, I think it's one of the best scores I've ever written. It was a true collaboration. Mm. Um, and I did see little snippets of Verhoeven talking about the Jerry Goldsmith score and he was always talking about encouraging him, pushing him, helping him, which is, uh, is, I think, you know, is a great way to approach the director-composer collaboration as opposed to, you know, you hear stories of, of uh, really bad collaborations between directors and composers. I mean, the stories are legendary of, of, of bad shit that's gone down. Um, essentially because directors, they have a hard time working with composers because it's really the, the, the one element of the film that they find hardest to communicate uh, and to, uh, because unless they're musicians themselves, you know, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like a different world, you know, you, you, to be a composer of music, you really have to have studied and been immersed in it for a very long period of time. It's not something you can just you know, read a couple of chapters on and then, oh, yep, I know how to do it. I know how to talk to a composer now, you know. It, it is very difficult, but I think I think they got the, the dynamic right and it's obviously a lot of mutual respect there. And, yeah, so I don't know. Don't Incredible. Know if there's much, much else to say, but it is an amazing score and uh, it is out there on Spotify and whatever, so check it out. Yeah, no, it's an awesome score. Have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? nice. You like playing games, don't you? I have a degree in psychology. It goes with the turf. Games are fun. What about boxing? That's a game. Is that fun too? I don't think that's relevant to this inquiry. Boxing was fun till Manny died. How'd you feel when he died? I loved him, it hurt. How'd you feel when I told you Johnny Boz had died? I felt like someone had read my book and was playing a game. But it didn't hurt? No. Because you didn't love him? That's right. Even though you were fucking him? You still get the pleasure. 
Didn't you ever fuck anybody else when you were married, Nick? How'd you know he was married? Maybe I was just guessing. What difference does it make? Would you like a cigarette, Nick? You two know each other? No. No. So we'll just we'll pivot to, uh, to our segment um, now. AJ, I I did my best this week. So this is keeper or creeper? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's it's only short because you know it was slim pickings. So yeah. <laughs> I, I I think first we've got George Zunza as Detective Gus Moran. So you know, salt of the earth detective <laughs> lives in the city, but he likes sort of a western rodeo themed bar. Every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> he's fun and he always as well. calls him Hoss, Hoss. doesn't he? <laughs> yes, Hoss. And he's fun, you know, even at work. Like he says um, of Johnny, so Johnny Boz is dead and, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, that there were uh, cum stains on the sheets or whatever. And and <laughs> we'll get to some of my favourite lines. I'll do that properly later, don't worry. But he says, uh, Gus says, he got off before he got up. <laughs> That's so, always funny. So he's fun, yeah. You know, he's 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 funny. Um, if or he's um uh, an inappropriate pig man. So you know, you you need to choose. So that's Gus. Um, keeper or creeper? Look, he brings pizza, and he's a bit funny, but he's a pig man. <laughs> so okay. you could reform him, surely. I could. I could change him. I've often thought this throughout my dating life. Okay. And that's never worked. So, <laughs> but I could with this one, I think. Now, and well, no, I, look, now don't feel bullied, like, because, you know, I want I want the keeper you pick to be worth it. So if he's not good, if he's, you said he's a, like, I don't think there can be much argument when you've called him a pig man. Yeah, he's a pig man. Well, then I think that he's a creeper. Then. Okay. He's a creeper. <laughs> I think he's been the closest to a keeper. That's true. Right? Definitely. But just because he's a keeper doesn't mean he's going to be your keeper, though, right? It just means that Look, he's keeper material. He's <laughs> <laughs> whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> All right. Next up, Leilani Sorrell as uh, Roxy. So oh. Ro- Roxy's a good dancer. She's a bad driver. So <laughs> That's unfortunate. She's what is it with Lotus in the nineties? Um, I love Lotus cars; they're so good. In Pretty Woman, does he drive a Lotus? The Spy Who Loved Me. This this is the car that turns into the submarine, right? Oh. In The Spy Who Loved Me. I feel like we need Yuri here to talk about these cars. You know, <laughs> I just I don't know if you've heard Mano Amano AJ, but Yuri loves cars, and he, you know he can really get deep on it. Whereas I I don't know anything. <laughs> but I did know when you said Spy Who Loved Me, I went, oh, yes, I know yeah, that. Yeah. And I know that car. So anyway, Roxy, um, she's intense, all right, but she, you know, she likes to watch, which is good. So if you like, if you like to, you know, um, that, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so what do you think of Roxy, keeper or creeper? Nah, creeper. She was too intense for me. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and, but what did you think of her dancing? Yeah, that's, that's a bit creepy. <laughs> the <They're> dancing <laughs> was... where she's going side to side with the guy <laughs> yeah. to that's, check out what that she, side what to Sharon side Stone's move doing. is fucking amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah, yeah. Impressive. It is. 
So uh, Detective Nick Curran, Michael Douglas, he's healthy for a guy who drinks, smokes, and does coke. Um, poor judgment, I'd say. Yeah. But a somewhat generous lover. Uh, yeah. He does, you know, um, I believe they would say uh, in some, you know, uh, provinces that he eats the puss. <laughs> he loves, <laughs> he's known, even in real life, eating the puss puss. Apparently that's, that's, how he got, uh, that's how he got tongue cancer, apparently. That's right. Which is, <laughs> which is not true. <laughs> it's the drinking and smoking <laughs> that did it to him. He just Imagine saying him. that, though. Like, wasn't that, that on amazing. a chat show? That's yes. That's a man who <laughs> has never, who who hasn't heard, well, hasn't engaged with real life in a long time. You, you know what? I think MythBusters needs to jump on board and do this one. Now that is a MythBusters I could watch. <laughs> <laughs> I could watch that. I could watch those three fat idiots talk about that. <laughs> Just get him to eat puss for twenty five years. <laughs> see what happens. Twenty five years. <laughs> long time, long show. All right, so Nick Curran on balance, keeper or creeper? Yeah, he's he's unhinged. <laughs> so he's creeper. Creeper, creeper. What did you think of his V-neck <laughs> sweater? <laughs> sweater, like, like I think it was like cashmere. Yeah, no good. You, you no. know what that is? That's like a mid forties guy who's looking in the wardrobe, going, "I need to go to this fucking club. What have I got? Oh my god, I guess this." It's quite brilliant in a way because he does. I don't know whether it was intended, but he certainly does stick out. Mm. Like he looks yeah. like he's not meant to be there. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's and the people who are there are dressed like in a way that's pretty outrageous. Like they've they've so many Pearl Jam vests. Yes. <laughs> you know those vests, those white t-shirts, and those vests. Where he's just used to being in dirty cop bars. Yes. Yep. Yep. So true. And so true. Sharon Stone looks sexy as fuck in that scene the gold dress the gold dress yeah with the hair up yeah when doesn't she there's so many times in this Jesus movie where she looks glamorous mm. do you know what i mean clothes, she's slamming no hot clothes. even now yes yeah, i agree she's, she's good now yeah i agree yeah no she but this movie really is a photo book of her just looking so hot like yeah in every kind of dress every kind of outfit you know, two one titty out, two titties out. You know, bush doesn't matter. <laughs> She's just so sexy. Yes, but that's a, that's a really hard thing to um, explore on screen. You know mm. what I mean? And 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 not everyone. You might you might have it in real life, but you might not have it in front of the camera. Yeah. The camera finds you out. Now, I've talked with Ricky about this before. You, you know, I mean, you just look on screen. I mean, this is the kind of discussion that, that people don't want you to have now, but it, it is what it is. So, you know, if you talk, you talk about who's sexy on screen, like, you know, I've talked about Janet Lee being one of the most sexless uh, uh, actresses mm. on screen that I've yeah. ever seen, you know, and there's, there's scores of these sexless actresses, whereas there's others that you just go, oh, my God, like you, you come across as, just a total sex pot, like Drew Barrymore when she was in Poison Ivy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Manic, you know, <laughs> manic, sexy. <laughs> uh, mm. But um, oh, Jenny Triplehorn, I think gets no no appreciation for her wonderful. Uh, Some people hate her in this movie. What? I've read that. Oh. She's got my, like one of my favorite scenes. That sex scene with her, yeah. the roughhousing one, mm. is oh my god, amazing. What what's what would be the claims? Can you remember any of them? They just say she's no good. The acting's she's no not good. a good actor. Yeah, 
What? I totally yeah. believe her. Like, yeah. like she's um. There are times when, like, because the, the reality of the movie is there's you know either Catherine did it all, Catherine did some of it, or Catherine did none of it. Mm. Now, Jenny Triplehorn's performance is such that I'm actually not sure. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like, there are there are wonderful cues in there. Where, um, like her, the way she looks at um, Nick when he when he goes in, and her face drops straight away as soon as he turns out of frame. Like you know, she she gets into her car, and, like changes her yes. expression straight away, and I yes. go, oh my god, I go, I, I go, I knew, I knew that's what women are doing. Yes. I knew, I knew that's what I know that's what Katie's doing. <laughs> you know? My wife <laughs> smiling, oh, yes, and then as soon as your back's turned, they're like. Mm. Like, yeah, <laughs> reality. So mm-hmm. I don't think she's so hot and she's played second fiddle and she gets it all out as well, mm, yeah. which is great. And and she's always second fiddle. In most of her movies, she's second fiddle. Waterworld. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's what she was in. I was trying to think what else she was in, Waterworld. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think she's fantastic. And she was straight out of Juilliard. Never mm. done a film before. She was. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Australian. Oh, she was really good then. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. That's big. But it is big. But I think, look, broadening out a bit, I think that this film is, is you know, sort of misunderstood in a way. And I, like it's engaged with some of the themes maybe. So I think that, um, you know, I don't think people give the story enough credit from in, beyond it being just a, a sort of a whodunit, you know what I mean? Like uh, look at it from Nick's point of view, okay? So... This seems so scary in a way. Like, how many women throw their lives away for a dude? Uh, like, I don't think it's as many as how as men who throw their lives away for a woman. <laughs> like, his behavior in this movie, Michael Douglas' behavior, seems totally real. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he'll do yeah. anything. He'll fuck yeah. his whole life up to yeah. get that pussy. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, it's a movie about like standing on the edge of your obsession and giving over to it, knowing full well that it's bad for you. Smoking, drinking, fucking, whatever it is, right? Mm. In fact, my personal anecdote, uh, I can tell you that this movie has made me backslide into smoking uh, more than three times. <laughs> <laughs> more than three times. Like I've watched it and gone, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> okay. you, you know, I think of that line, you know, and how's that smoking? <laughs> Sucks. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, well, did you know that uh, the film was criticised for glamorising cigarette smoking? Yes. And scre- and Joe Esterhouse, is, later he was diagnosed with throat cancer and he publicly apologised for glamorising smoking in, in film. Yes. No, it, I, can, I totally agree with that. It, I, I've been a victim of, of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it's yeah, I get that totally. And what can you do? I mean, he, he, he was coming from an old Hollywood tradition and... You know, he was using it as a prop and a, and a way of life, and and um, yeah, ultimately, it's 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 not good. But the way the way Stone smokes is sexy. Oh yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, Ricky, I know you, you you've never been a smoker, so I can tell that Michael Douglas fucking loves. He love he loves a wheeze. You know what I mean. <laughs> Like whereas he was he was suck he sucks on him like it's everyone's his last. Okay. <laughs> whereas she's doing dainty, she's not rich, she's not taking a deep drag, you know? Mm. Like like he well, she's trying to keep it sexy as well, but like yep. he's just going mwah, 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 sucking it down. So 
This all maybe, maybe this movie's also now. I got this from uh, Charlie Rose interview that Esther House did, which was really fascinating. It's about a book he'd written about twenty years ago about Clinton. Uh, he was talking about that, and he, and he's sort of in that book. I forget what it's called, American Taboo or something like that. And and some of the chapters in the book, you know, he writes from Clinton's uh, Dick's perspective, um, <laughs> whatever the Dick's name is, starts with a D, Derek or whatever, and uh, about the Lewinsky scandal, all that crap. But he talks about like that book and you know some of his interests being about the you know the sort of the male well he calls it the rock and roll generation but we would sort of maybe identify it as being like the male boomer uh, generation um and i use that as a, a non-pejorative because i know that that's got a pejorative thing i'm just saying it's descriptive like that's the era so he's written about i think if you see michael douglas in this movie as being part of that bill clinton era um and that type of man uh i think that adds a little bit of something to it so it's 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 good men well-intentioned men with big flaws and pussy hounds <laughs> but <laughs> but as joe Esterhaus has said he says everyone in that generation regardless of what they ended up going into like him being a writer or you know wanting to be president or wanting to do whatever they all wanted to be rock and roll stars mm. and that's the way that Esterhaus has you know, written and lived his life and he's had a really rock and roll experience and he's written about it. And I feel like Nick in this movie is exactly that. He's a, he's a re- extension of, of Joe Esterhaus's um, perspective, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think maybe because obviously generations have changed and times have changed and whatever, maybe that's part of the reason we don't get these experiences anymore. Like we don't have... Like you know, there's there's sort of a, a yeah, there's an a, 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 a external you know search for meaning in, in sense experience and all sorts of stuff that is missing, yeah, from um, the Avengers. That's <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, like so so, but like Nick Curran in this movie searching for something, you know, that he can't find, and I think it's that generation. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and he's looking for it everywhere. Uh, so I don't know. I thought that was just an interesting read. You know something about Clinton being being mixed in there because I think that's that 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 type of guy has been, you know, probably uh, explored to the full and we've moved on now. So now it's all about um, I don't know, young girls, um, by girls who work in New York City at a publishing firm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what we want. That's what we want. Or a fashion magazine and the kooky trans person who works with them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There's no room for Gus anymore. No, no room for. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> don't you think? We'll do some lines now because every. Don't you think there were so many lines in this that are just beyond the pale now? Yeah. Like like workplace stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So my, my, I mean, some of my favorite. This one is just. This one's uh, a a great one. I, I referenced it before. There's cum stains all over the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just say that? <laughs> While you're looking at a dead body, gum <laughs> yeah, stains. But but there were. He wasn't oh, but lying. But there were. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying it's uh, it was factual. a literal take. Yeah. <laughs> Actual. Okay. I love. There's so many great lines. So your mate Gus AJ uh, yeah. says to Catherine, "What are you a pro?" Uh, at one point, and I believe he's referencing. He's asking her whether she is a prostitute. <laughs> I, I like her response though. She no, says. an amateur. Okay. An amateur. That's great. <laughs> she she's in into it for the yucks, not for the money. That's right. Um, lots of great little playful bits of dialogue that get stuck in my head. Now, because I've seen it too many times, I'm obsessed with all the little lines, not the big mm-hmm. ones. Like there's lines like just little things like 
Ain't that cute? It's Gus. Ain't that cute? They got his and hers Picassos. Gus, I didn't know that you knew who Picasso was. Sure, it says right there. And then then just, you know, hers is bigger. <laughs> you yeah. know? Right. Hers is bigger. <laughs> that is just fantastic dialogue. You know? That was good. What about the let me ask you something, Rocky, man to man? Well, that's that would be that's that would get you <laughs> <laughs> I think of the this little line. This, this is my last one, but this line gets stuck in my head. It's from the boss says it to uh, Michael Douglas. I don't give a shit what she published. What are you all of a sudden a book critic? <laughs> 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 I think about that all the time. What are you a book critic? <laughs> that's another thing. This movie is obsessed with books, and people don't read anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. like that's that's part of the early '90s thing as well. You go, oh wow, books. Mm. <laughs> you know, people reading books yeah. mm. and it being a thing in the culture. You know, reading reviews of books and reading books. Mm. That's not done. That's just not done. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got I've got some Me Too stuff. Uh, or do or do you want to do reviews first? What do What do you want to do? Or have you got reviews? No reviews. No, I have <laughs> reviews. I've got trivia and reviews. So it's a trivia. So, uh, Basic Instinct opened in theaters in the U.S. and was one of the highest grossing films of 1992, and it trailed behind, I think, Aladdin and Home Alone 2. Um, in its opening weekend, the film grossed 15 million. It was the fourth fourth highest grossing film of 1992. It grossed uh, $352 million worldwide. Uh, it had a record opening in Italy with a gross of $5.4 million for the week uh, from 155 screens and was the highest grossing film in Spain of all time with a gross of 20, uh, $21.6 million. So the Spanish, they get it. Wow. Big internationally as well as uh, mm. locally. Um, I reckon it did, would have done big in Japan as well. Yeah, you think so? I reckon. Yeah, mm. I get those numbers, but I, I, know, I, I just have a feeling. Yeah, well, they're they're kink machines over there. <laughs> 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 they're Don't the king so of okay. kink machines. <laughs> there they are. Uh, <laughs> so the main sex scene with Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone took five days to film. Oh, wow. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Five days to film. and um, That's a long time. Well, whenever you see that much coverage, you know, in a scene, that's how long that, that like that interview scene would have taken a week. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh. like that, that's how long you spend when you, when you want it to look good and it's that amount of firepower and it's, you know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's, you do spend like five days yep. wow. just, yep. you know, getting it right. Verhoeven shot copious amounts of footage for the sex scene because um, he, he, he was expecting that the MPAA would have problems with the explicit nature. So he shot alternate close-ups, medium shots, and wide shots of every, of virtually every shot over five days, uh, which gave him the freedom to edit the scene until the uh, MPAA was satisfied and, and you know, no longer demanded that uh, a scene be altered or deleted. So I think that's one of the re- – he just knew that there'd be problems, so he'd just have to have enough coverage so – you didn't have to. You didn't want to cut anything out. That's the thing. Well, we ended up watching the unrated version, which has got a couple of shots. Just a couple of shots that, that were added in um, after that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you love this one, Astro. No body doubles were used in any of the sex scenes. What? Fucking amazing. So that's both of them. Well, the three of them, because uh, Jeannie, what's her face, gets uh, triple horn, gets her horns out. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> no, that's great. But down with body doubles. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So Sharon Stone was offered the role after 13 actresses had turned it down. But as we know, Verhoeven was gunning for her from the beginning. Um, so the scene where Michael Douglas has sex with Jeannie Triplehorn uh, was actually a rehearsal of the scene and oh things God. heated up really quickly as you know you can obviously tell and uh obviously the camera was rolling and paul verhoeven he liked the performance so much that that's the one that made it it's so hot. jesus well the it's ripping so off of the underwear and <laughs> yeah it's just great like and again completely indefensible it will always be hot i don't care what anyone says that's it like you know it just rides the line mm. you know yeah um, it's hot, no matter how you look at it. And if the authoritarians on the left and the far, and probably the far Christian right or whatever, <laughs> both of them, if they get their way, you don't get that mm. same. Yeah. Okay. They don't. They don't. They don't believe the good dream of what the bad do. You know. They. They. They believe that monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. You know. Well, mm. they should want to have sex like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. So Sharon Stone's infamous leg uncrossing scene was not in Esther House's original script. It was thought up by Paul Verhoeven uh, while the movie was being shot. And it was based on a memory, actually, of Verhoeven's college years when uh, a woman at a party had done the exact same thing to embarrass him, apparently. Um, he tells a story of a, of a woman who would do this all the time. And he actually confronted her at one stage and said, you know what's... You know, we can see you down there. And she's like, yeah, I know. That's the point. Wow. So why can't we have, why, why can't we have those experiences, Astro? My college years were boring. <laughs> yeah, no, it never happened. Mm. Never happened. <laughs> so, uh, yes, what a great scene. What a great scene. Uh, the movie completely ignored DNA, which had been used in the criminal investigation since the mid-1980s. Um, so... Joe Estherhouse later admitted uh, that not mentioning the DNA was a major plot hole in his screenplay. Um, but you know what? I didn't even really notice or care. So, mm. well, oh, because they would have they would have looked for trace elements on like the the wig. And yeah, stuff, yeah, they would have gone. You know, Catherine's juices are all over here. You know. Like, <laughs> ah yes. Ah yes. Know. Yes. Tell me. Tell me. <laughs> Please. <laughs> So Michael Douglas declined to go full frontal in the film or to let his character be bisexual. Yeah. Okay. Well, well why not? I mean, now, yeah, again, you'd be fired. Mm. They'd say, they'd say your character likes cock and balls as well, <laughs> or you're fired. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, here's, here's an interesting thing. Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone had to wear genital pads during the sex scenes uh, due to the AIDS epidemic. Oh. Which makes me think, when you're doing five days of shooting a sex scene, does it ever just slip in there, you know? <laughs> slip in there? <laughs> Penetrative set. Well, they're getting pretty hot and heavy and it looks pretty real. Like, you know, <laughs> the genitals are pretty well aligned in these scenes. A lot needs to happen. Yeah, you, you forget how many... You know, gross crew members are standing around. Like, yes, but I know you, you underestimate the power of, of the, the chubby. chubby. <laughs> I, how dare you say that? I do not disrespect the chubby. <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> that, like, yeah, no, it's a lot of mechanics, I think. 
I don't know. I think I think Douglas has it in him to get hard at with other people around. I don't the drop know. of a hat. <laughs> the drop of a hat. That's right. Anyway, so I never knew that genital pads were a thing. Um, anyway, so Michael Douglas had a full facelift before filming began. I don't know. I couldn't really well, tell. He just looked normal to well, me. Well, he's look. He, to look, and I love Michael Douglas, but he he looks a little rough in the movie. Mm, that's right. Like a little bit. Yeah. So that means he's he's. He must have been living hard, you know what I mean, for a face to, to not do that much. Mm. Uh, Verhoeven was on record uh, when he first signed up to do the film as saying that he wanted to make the first Hollywood mainstream film with an erect penis in it, but he didn't get his wish. So no. fuck you, Michael Douglas. <laughs> what do we see that in? Uh, under the Skin. Yes, Under the Skin with um, ScarJo. Yeah, mm. great film. Yeah, but that's not really a mainstream film, though. That's like an art house thing. No, you're right. Everyone should watch Direct that film. Penis. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. Yes. Um, San Francisco Police Department had to deploy 50 riot police at every location to deal with uh, the picketing gay and lesbian activists. So that is my trivia. Um, there was a lot of trivia in this film, but uh, I think it was warranted. <laughs> I think. So let's let's move on to reviews quickly, or maybe not so quickly, because that's long also. Uh, <laughs> Janet Maslin <laughs> of the failing New York Times praised the film, saying basic instinct transfers Mr. Verhoeven's flair for action-oriented material to the realm of Hitchcockian intrigue, and the results are viscerally effective even when they don't make sense. Um, this is my favourite one, Australian critic shannon j harvey of the sunday times uh calling it one of the 1990s finest productions doing more for female empowerment than any feminist rally stone in her star making performance is as hot and sexy as she is ice pick cold there you go that's from perth by the way mm, very good oh. sunday times yes uh let's talk about ebit he gave it two out of four stars <laughs> Now, I like doing EBIT because I feel like EBIT is like the anti-side boob. So yeah, it's, it's, good to get, it's good to get another perspective, you know. Uh, now, I got, I got a couple of paragraphs I, I have to read out here. Consider the last shot of the movie. No, I will not reveal it. This shot uh, allows us to uh, discover who done it, whether one of the characters is a murderer or not. The screen is faded to black, then we get the last shot. It answers our question, but if the last shot had provided the opposite answer, it still would have been consistent with everything that happened in the film. Each and every shred of evidence throughout the entire movie supports two different conclusions. Uh, this is the kind of ending beloved by marketing experts. The audience likes the heroine. Make her innocent. They hate her. Make her the killer. Uh, only one shot has to be changed. As a result, I left the movie feeling depressed and manipulated because it didn't matter how hard I tried to follow the plot and figure things out. The whole movie was just toying with me. It's not really the last shot technique that I object to. What bothers me is that the whole plot has been constructed so that every relevant clue can be read in two ways. That means the solution, when it is finally revealed, is not necessarily true. It is simply the writer's toss of a dice. Uh, what a load of old tosh. <laughs> About the sex joy. scenes, I know, I know. About the sex scenes, the movie would have been more of a turn on if it hadn't tried so hard. The sex resembles a violent contact sport with a scoring system known only to the players. And he ends by saying the film is like a crossword puzzle. It keeps your interest until you solve it. Then it's just a worthless scrap. 
with the spaces filled in. Again, Ebert, I wish you could have seen uh, the year of our Lord 2021. <laughs> I know. Uh, screen <laughs> gems that we've had to put I up. Know, I know. Revise some of these mm, terrible. Now, my last, qu- my last quote here comes from Camille Paglia, which we've uh, mentioned already. Um, she denounced gay activists and uh, feminist protests against Basic Instinct and called Sharon Stone's performance one of the greatest performances by a woman in screen history, praising her character as a great vamp figure like Mona Lisa herself like a pagan goddess what a hero Polly is I know. Eh? where would we be without mm. her she's so great so true that is a good pivot to me too just a couple of little things uh, only, only you know I think the film really speaks for itself relatively but just, uh, just some things to keep in mind when you're coming up with your rating leave it to Beaver Interview scene is most damning group of men interview one female person of interest, which is fine, except they're all sweaty and can't stop thinking about her sex life. So that's a problem, that interview scene. Um, There are obviously famous allegations that Sharon Stone didn't know she was gifting us all this view of her blonde bush, uh, which only adds to the celebration of piggery in this scene. So that's, uh, that's that scene. Microaggressions, we've covered some of these. Uh, you know, there's all through the film in, and in workplaces, there's just constant jokes and jibes uh, that wouldn't fly today. So I think, you know, Nick comes into work and someone is like, they know that he's had sex that night and they say, he looks a little shrunk is all. And then someone else says, and not just in their head. So, you know, I mean, he said, Nick's sitting within his psych evaluation with Dr. Garner and he holds up his hand and says, you know, I started developing calluses. Yes. Like, you know, like I've been joking off after <laughs> yeah. not being with you. So that's that's not going to get you anywhere in workplaces today. <laughs> Lesbian friends, okay? Both Roxy and Dr. Garner are into girls and they're both crazier than a bat on acid, okay? So, which is not good advertising for the LGBT community, as we've discussed, plus both get sacrificed to protect the main heterosexual relationship. Uh, nudity, well, that's disgusting, as we talked about. So that goes on there. Uh, so really, the severity of these charges depend on what you think of Catherine. Is she in control or is she not? You know, I think that really that really will sell it for you. So if you feel like, you know, she's a feminist hero, like uh, Camille Paglia says, then it may affect the score. If you feel that, you know, really, you know, this movie is just uh, in a patriarchy uh propaganda then that's that'll speak for itself so what what do we what do we reckon i think she's a very strong and in control character and i think that i think the infamous uh interview scene she is completely in control she's got all those guys by the balls yep i'm gonna give this movie um a four out of ten on the meter scale i agree yep it's so funny the most overtly sexual films are the ones that uh you know, sometimes surprise. I think this movie is is uh, you know uh, a fantastic uh, example of of strong female character. You know, totally uh, star making performance, and and you know we we just can't get enough of her. It's it's mm. it's glorious to behold. Let me uh, let me wrap this up with one last quote from Verhoeven. Basic instinct opened all the doors for me in Hollywood, and showgirls closed them. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect to end our Joe. It's the house <laughs> festival. Yes. That's perfect. Excellent. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, that's Joe as the house. We'll hope that we'll, we'll have to think about another 
you know, themed set of, um, you know, films, you know, particularly in the new year, uh, you know, to, 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 I really enjoyed getting deep on this. It was great to be able to, to sit with one, one person and think about them and not jump around so much. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, let's do more of that. Mm. Um, next week, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about what we're doing next week, but there is a film I really want you guys to see. So um, maybe we'll do that. Uh, it's from 1974. It's called Phantom of the Paradise. It's Ooh. a Brian De Palma film. It's a musical. So we haven't done a musical, I don't think, properly. Maybe we have, maybe sort of. But I really want to know what you think of this film. So that's what we'll do next week. Sounds good. How exciting. But hey, oh, well, there was one other thing. I wanted to do um, over the Christmas period uh, some carry on films. What do we think? <gasps> Amazing. <laughs> okay, good. I'll tell <laughs> I'm so excited. Great. I used to okay. watch them when I was little. Excellent. <laughs> well, I'll, I will go I'll pick out a couple and more. I just, I, I don't know why, but I just wanted to really let my hair down and go, let's watch some carry on films. Because I feel like that they are the most deeply offensive to Definitely. the authoritarian <laughs> left. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait. I am beaming. I'm so excited. <laughs> Great. I'm even salivating. Well, let me know if there's, if there's any particular ones because, you know, I was just going to go from to, from the beginning and see. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Ricky, anything else? No, I think that wraps it up. Uh, it's been very enjoyable doing the uh, Esther House Film Festival, uh, the Frank Fest. Um, <laughs> yep, I love the show. I love this podcast. Uh, let's keep it going through into the new year. And uh, we said what we said, AJ. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Full commitment. Yeah. I mean, guys, I mean. And until next time, <laughs> long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. Yes, but you you underestimate the power of, of the, the chubby. chubby. <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>